With a little bit of knowledge with snowmobiling, you can really not take a lot of risk. There's been a lot of positive change in the avalanche industry towards motorized users, 100%. But I'll advocate hard until I, I feel like it's where it needs to be. Hi, this is Jeremy Hankey, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by 10 Barrel Brewing. Hey, welcome back to episode 7.3 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. Hope you're having a great day. I just wanted to start the show by giving our 2022-23 Regional Snow and Avalanche Workshop Roundup. So tomorrow, October 21st, and Saturday, October 22nd, we've got the Wyoming Snow and Avalanche Workshop going on. And of course, it's great to attend in person. But if you're unable to, that's free to attend virtually. So check out that this weekend. Coming up on October 26th, there's the Montana State University Snow and Avalanche Workshop in Bozeman. And then moving into November, early November, there's three days of the Utah Snow and Avalanche Workshop, November 2nd, 7th, and 9th. And into November 4th, we've got the South Central Alaska Avalanche Workshop coming up. There are a bunch more throughout November, um, and I'll mention those in upcoming episodes. Before we get into our feature interview for the day, I'd like to welcome back Gabrielle Antonoli to the show, and she's going to be talking about a new project that's rolled out in partnership with the American Avalanche Association called the Avalanche Resilience Project. All right, I'd like to welcome back Gabrielle Antonoli to the Avalanche Hour podcast. She was on a couple seasons ago. You can go back and listen to the full-length episode with her. It's episode 510. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, just adjusting to some new work, but yeah. Yeah, you just got a job at the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I'm really stoked for this winter and bringing some change there. Awesome. Well, you're here today to talk a little bit about the Avalanche Resilience Project, which we alluded to back in that episode a couple seasons ago, and you've been putting in the hard work to make this happen for our community. So what is the Avalanche Resilience Project? It's sort of the brainchild of a larger group of people uh, that we were really trying to form an organization that could provide grants and have a directory and some resources for uh, not only snow professionals, but anyone impacted by an avalanche accident. And now that project is under the umbrella of the American Avalanche Association, and it will have grants available for A3 members and also has a resource directory. So a list of like therapists, providers, um, different types of therapy for people, as well as just kind of 
a laundry list of other tools and things that people can listen to podcasts, books, um, anything to really help with like building cultural resiliency uh, in the avalanche community. Wow. That's great. And, and you were mentioning earlier that this, these grants are also available to organizations. Is that right? Yeah. So we just want everyone to stay tuned for this coming early November. That's when the grants will open up and there'll be individual grants available as well as group grants. So a patrol organization or a guiding organization could apply for a grant um, to bring someone in to help with a training or anything that sort of bolsters a sort of a more resilient culture in that work environment. It's kind of what we're aimed at. And how is this funded? Where, where are the grants coming from? Uh, part of the money is just from the general fund of the American Avalanche Association. And then we were very fortunate that Backcountry was able to provide some more funding for it. And um, in the next few years, especially if more and more people utilize the grants, we'll be kind of reaching out to f- see if other donors might be willing to kind of help build the project because it is so impactful. And if there's a donor out there listening, a potential donor, how would they get in touch with you to help fund this project? Um, they can email the executive director of the American Avalanche Association, so Janie Nolan. Um, and her email is listed on the website, or they can email resilience at avalanche.org um, and get both of us that way. And the website can be found on uh, the American Avalanche Association.org slash resilience. Great. Anything else we need to know about this, Gabrielle? No, I think that's it. I, I really hope people uh, check it out, uh, look, take a look at the website, and just feel free to email in as well if you see something that you want on there or something that we could add or if you're a provider that would want to be listed. Uh, yeah, please reach out and tell us what you want to see on there. Awesome. Well, thanks to you and your comrades for putting in the hard work to make this happen for the community. Well, thanks, Caleb. Jeremy Hankey's on the show today. I first heard about Jeremy um, while I was in attendance at the 2016 ISSW in Breckenridge, Colorado. And I remember Jeremy's talk um, about motorized avalanche education. And I'm paraphrasing here, but what I remember him saying is avalanche educators can't just throw on a different brand jacket and hop on a snow machine and feel like they're actually delivering quality avalanche education to a a different user group than what they're used to traveling in the backcountry with. Um, And so I saw it as a real call to action uh, for the development of actual motorized avalanche education curriculum and Jeremy's really put his money where his mouth is when it comes to that through advocacy and through the development of his business Soul Rides. Um, We'll hear all about Jeremy's background, his involvement in some avalanches and then the evolution of his involvement in motorized avalanche education and progression of the sport as well. Um, So without further ado here we go with Jeremy Hankey. I was a snowboarder and uh, I got a snowmobile in 98 to access the back country. <laughs> and then I didn't touch my snowboard for a very long time. And uh, yeah, and now, you know, circumnavigate whatever accidents and my involvement in the avalanche industry. It's uh, took me 15 years to 
figure out exactly and being able to put it into words what you're questioning and why you want to ride a snowmobile is what is the difference and what is the approach difference between you know snowboarding and skiing compared to snowmobiling and you know for the first start of it all everybody was just in hoopla because so many people were dying on snowmobiles and and it must be the most dangerous thing they're too heavy they trip they're better easier triggering avalanches there's all these different thoughts that were happening but um, the reality is, you know, with a little bit of knowledge with snowmobiling, you can really not take a lot of risk. And um, now I've kind of circumnavigated my path to where I'm back interested in snowboarding. And one of my good buddies uh, is a partial owner at Eagles Pass Heli Skiing. So I spent a bit of time in a helicopter still, you know, and uh, and I still spend a bit of time in the backcountry on a snowboard. And, and you know, I did the art of flight stuff as an Abbey pro for those guys and, and pushing terrain that way. And yeah, the difference is, is that it's this simple. You spend 80% of your day on avalanche train when you ski or snowboard. When you're snowmobiling, you spent maybe 30% of your day exposed to avalanche train and 70% of your day, you know, probably not even exposed to avalanche train while you're riding. So, and maybe if you're lucky, 5% of your time during your day is spent on avalanche train. So it's an interesting approach when you realize the time spent is, is mitigating risk and then the risk really increases for snowmobilers because they can pool up underneath things right and uh and or climb up over their heads on those short periods of time where you know when you're skiing and snowboarding you're on the top of a face you dive in you space out you spend a lot of time looking at that exact snowpack because the risks have really increased soon as you put three or four people on that face and uh and you pretty much have to ski a lot of stuff depending on what mountain range you're in accordingly you can't just ski the whole thing unless you're doing some mini golf stuff so you're going to have to understand a lot more about the snowpack that you're about to make a risk on where snowmobiling is we're moving really really quickly and um throughout train and if we can get these you know driving habits of not placing more than uh two people exposed to the same avalanche problem at the same time if that's our focus of education, it really reduces our chance of dying, you know, drastically. And then it's terrain trap observation. So really focusing with my education, I focus a lot more on hazard recognition and the increase of that danger with human factors than I do in snowpack. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if I was to spend time teaching snowboarders, I would spend, you know, a snowboarder, time they leave my level two, could be able to write, you know, uh, produce an extended column, a compression test, all those sorts of things. But is that a primary concern for me with snowmobiling when I teach? Not at all. My primary concern is getting them to understand the, the backcountry driving rules and the spacing and the posting positions and being able to identify hazard as we move quickly through an assortment of terrain is my focus. And, you know, then, you know, when you talk to Ian, there's the other big thing is like persistent slab problems. That's what's killing most snowmobilers or most people in the backcountry. But especially when they're, in my personal opinion, 50 cms to 60 cms deep, that's when we get a lot of sledders. And when you get, when you look at skiers, like, okay, we have a 20 centimeter slab while you're skiing an 1800 vertical foot run, you know, yeah, you can go for a pinball ride in a small slab. Most of the time, snowmobilers are on mini golf, you know, like they're short sloped, a little 30 centimeter slabs that pull out. They take them for a quick ride and disperses out and they have people around, helps them out. But it's when it's 50, 60 cm's deep that you have that, you know, where it starts piling up as uh, 
it's kind of a theory that myself and uh, Ian have been kind of mulling around. What what is the slab depth of a persistent slab that creates the the higher chance of killing uh, motorized users? Mm-hmm. I think the key for our industry in general is to what's the difference between skiing and snowboarding and motorized use, and what do we need to focus on in that communication tactic, getting down to the easy bare bones, so that like I know the fatality runs are big in the u.s right now and and why is that all of a sudden like canada had its big run through the early nine or mid 90s to two 2010 type thing why is the u.s just ramping up all of a sudden with motorized fatalities besides the machines what's changed really why did canada go through that run before the u.s went through all the fatality runs that's uh you know to where they are right now is it the lack of okay, we had a lot of people dying in Canada, so we addressed that with, you know, throttle decisions and some money invested and, and uh, really general awareness and knowledge. So why was the U.S. behind? Why, why were they not having more fatalities when we were having fatalities? Is an interesting conundrum to look at. But either way, the fatality rates are up. And what were we successful with in Canada? Okay, well, awareness goes a long way. I tell you, when I get on a snow, I get on a snowboard and I get in a helicopter, I go ski touring. I feel naked. I uh, I feel more insecure in those environments than I do on a snowmobile, and that's because I can't duck, dodge, dive, and dip. I can do that on a snowmobile really quickly, and long as people understand how to play football with me in the backcountry, my my risk is really minimized because I have a line of sight on me. I have a rescue plan constantly as I'm driving through terrain. And as I take risks, as soon as I recognize a train trap below me, then I can quickly adjust, right? But sometimes when you get out of a helicopter and you're skiing a large face, you don't see all that. You don't memorize it. You come over the roll and you see this little dip there, but then three of you are kind of exposed to the same face at the same time really quickly. So you know, it's pretty rare if I have, you know, a considerable or or a, a hazard to the slope that I'm going to ski that I don't really shove my head in the snow pretty quick before I ski or snowboard that slope. Where for me, if it's even at that considerable rating in the back of my head on a snowmobile, I just go around it. Mm-hmm. Right? It's fairly easy in most cases. And I'm a little lucky because I ride in the Monashies, you know, and uh, I think some mountain ranges when we get into Canadians, a bill or, uh, you know, eights ratings of, you know, a simple, challenging, complex train, a generalized train is, you know, you go to Golden just south of Revelstoke, you're in complex all the time. You know, you have a lot more complex train to manage than let's say the Monashi mountain range where you have a lot of challenging avalanche train. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, I think when I head into the complex train, then, you know, I want to take a lot more data in before I go than if, let's say, I'm going in challenging terrain all day where it's easy to duck, dodge, dive, and dip from what I'm intaking from information there. And, and you as a forecaster, how do you communicate that to a snowmobiler, right? And I think that's where eights ratings being adopted in the U.S. give you a good general idea to communicate once it's inside the uh, ether of the of the culture that understand being able to slightly rate that, Hey, you know, challenging avalanche train, I can careful route finding. I can, uh, you know, avoid the problems in this sort of situation. So uh, I can go in there, have a look, get a better understanding what the snowpack's doing and move through there without making any, um, without making any really risks. But then for snowmobiling, it's just like, Oh, well, I want to go to Joss today or whatever the place is. And, 
they just shoot up there without inherent understanding of avalanche train and how it functions. So I, I, I think with some very entry-level education, you can make a lot of snowmobilers a lot less at risk mm-hmm. just by train identification. So, um, And then from there, grow their ability to decide if they want to use complex avalanche train to get through. And then that really comes down to the human factors and spacing. Cause you know, in snowboarding, you're like, you ski this slope down here and then you've got your whole group, you know, pinned up here and then you're going to ski it, space it as best as you can and make decisions as you leapfrog down the train. And for snowmobiling, it's not, not much different, but it's vaster. So since we cover huge amounts of area, while well, you got this exposure up here on the North aspect, well, I can go underneath that and somebody can stay back, but it might be a half a kilometer's distance to space that out. So if on the other side of that, some really good, challenging or simple train to ride in, but you're a little bit nervous about this piece of train, well, you don't play on it, you space it, it might be a whole kilometer. But humans humans don't like the being apart from one another. It's like a little bit like the cattle. They don't like this big space. But it's something in snowmobiling that I like to see in riding partners that are able to realize where the risk is, where I'm exposed, post in a safe spot, make sure I clean it, but then and clean it by just clearing it, and then me looking back to make sure that they clear it. So it's always that line of sight for last point seen. And, um, you know, the professional avalanche community just really hasn't spent a good amount of time developing train travel habits that are focused on motorized users. And um, and to be honest, a lot of the educators, unless you're a, unless you're a good quality snowmobiler that's been doing this a long time and you can kind of think for yourself, nobody's handed you curriculum that tells you how to teach it to somebody. So everybody's just kind of teaching their own thing or their own approach. And I, I think there needs to be some serious time spent looking at, at two major things in motorized education. And that is motorized avalanche rescue, uh, which you'll probably see me drop something at ISSW in Oregon. Um, I wanted to pre COVID, but uh, I have outlined motorized avalanche rescue procedures um, and, you know, I just want to drop it at ISSW and see what people think. And, uh, you know, it's addressing the electrical interference issues through procedure. It's addressing an assortment of things to make sure that the snowmobiles are a useful, speedy tool that, uh, that also doesn't create a problem because they create a huge amount of problems if not used correctly. But they're also a major asset. So, you know, that's not being taught to the motorized users. And you have all these organizations you know, saying that they have motorized curriculum. Okay, well, that's a start. Um, but in my opinion, they're nowhere near where they should be for selling courses to motorized users, making money off it, a proper motorized curriculum. And, and organizations have started doing that. I just don't think they're fully there yet. And then, of course, train travel habits is the other huge thing that I'm a monster component on. Like, um, I think that needs to be standardized. So when you know, Johnny from Colorado comes up here and he's riding around the backcountry in Revelstoke. It's the same sort of approach and understanding of spacing as we have to play through, like being on a golf course, you know, like um, there's an et- backcountry etiquette that needs to also be well outlined and and generalized in these courses for recreational users and, and for and the guiding association and all of it. It's uh, there's. 70% of avalanche education covers what we need to know as motorized users and 30% is missing. And I've been on that soapbox for mm, 12 years. Yeah. And it hasn't changed that much, unfortunately. 
but there have been some steps. I mean, it's gotten better. Yeah. I mean, you could agree. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. And I'm a, I'm a survivor, right? So I don't, uh, I'm right to the point. I'm not a sugar coater. I just, uh, there's been a lot of positive change in the avalanche industry towards motorized users, hundred percent, but I'll advocate hard until I, I feel like it's where it needs to be. And, um, people find me a little rough around the edges that way. It's just, uh, it's my personality because I have this weird connection to anybody that dies in the things. So every, you know, it's, uh, the drowning victims have a similar thing, all the rest of it. Uh, um, so I, I just keep ramming at home that there's just needs to continue be continued growth in certain ways. And it's unfortunate because I think a lot of the, you know, avalanche organizations, ARI, Avalanche Canada, CAA, the AAA, all Colorado Avalanche School, all these different places are trying to adjust, uh, to address the issues, but, um, we all need to come sit together and hatch it out as motorized users and say, look, like, what do we need as motorized users from these organizations at this point? It's been great that the organizations have been addressing us and moving towards, um, communicating and development. Um, I think the real next step is for motorized users to ask them, and, and quantify what we need in return for education. And because um, as yourself, just picking up a sled and coming from a ski background, you're like, well, what do I need to know and how much different is this? Mm-hmm. And uh, as I think a lot of forecasters or ski community that are picking up snowmobiles um, are realizing there's quite a bit of difference, but what is that difference and how do you put your finger on it? Is it the impact of the snowpack? What's the chances of triggering? How much has that increased? Okay, how do I actually manage the fact that seven of my friends are on a snowmobile and none of them are looking to where anybody else is in the playing field and they're all just running around? And, you know, when I first started taking out Avalanche Professionals in BC here, we had exactly that problem. You know, they're just focused in on trying to figure out how to ride the thing, let alone paying attention to what the Avalanche problem was doing around them. So, yeah, I I think you know, sitting down in a room and, and just some, uh, acceptance that we are missing, which, you know, we have, but even in Canada, like we just did an AST2 curriculum for motorized and, and I hate to say it, but when I look, look down at it, it doesn't hit the points. And, uh, I'm not the guy that's going to be super nice about it. I'm, I'm not here to, to, you know, just fluff everything. I think, um, it's just, I'll be really raw about what I see. And, um, because I don't want every time somebody passes away or something, I look at it, I read the story and it's just like, Oh wow. Like that was so preventable as we all know. Okay. Well, some of the education addresses that, but then when you look at some of the fatalities, like electrical interference in this industry, nobody wants to accept that. I, you know, everywhere I look is people putting cell phones in their pockets and I, uh, I run 40 courses a year. And every course has a realistic, at least two to three realistic avalanche scenarios ran through. And I see what phones do. I see what snowmobiles do. I, um, you know, it's, and that stuff's happening in real situations and real rescues, especially with the death tolls in the U S and, uh, and I think the U S does a, a much better job at looking at fatality and sharing that fatality with, uh, communities around them, but we're not taking lessons away from why we couldn't recover, uh, what was the human factors of jumping up and how we can address that. And we all, we got to wait for all these big studies to look at it. Well, uh, I don't know, maybe climb with the Avalanche Alliance 
needs to be motivated to pull some funding out for ARI or the Avalanche organizations to have a little money to study a few things that uh, can maybe target us on what needs to change. Jeremy, it sounds like you're advocating for these conversations to to be had across the border, hey, like across North America. Uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, I was down there doing a bunch of talk tours uh, pre-COVID and uh, just sharing my story or whatever. And as you can tell, I'm a bit passionate about it all. And uh, that sells well, you know, in those experiences because I have all the real life stories. Um, and it just promotes awareness into education. But ultimately, when I motivate people to get educated, what what sort of education are they getting, right? And then if the education's mediocre, how, do they feel empowered they, that they got educated at this point? Like, is an avalanche awareness talk education? Not in my opinion, you know, like hands-on education is really where it's at and and practice. So, you know, I think the U.S. marketing towards that now in the motorized community is on snow education. Um, okay, well, what sort of qualities there? Like, did we teach them how to do rescue? How, how well was that course delivered? So for me, I, I think for the majority of sledders, the, the, the message is this simple. It's like, you want to ride simple avalanche train, get a simple avalanche course. You want to ride challenging or complex avalanche train, you might want to up your game. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, like learning to drive. It just doesn't happen overnight. It's a graduated learning process. And I think educators are happy if sledders just get into one awareness course. They make their money and they, but the thing is, is that they walk away and they feel empowered that they have the knowledge to be doing what they're doing. And, uh, and, and a lot of ways they don't, you know, it's, I had that, that before I started going to the U S and I had a group, uh, call me up a media group. It's like, Oh, well, it was actually a Coosters calls me and like, Hey, we've got a media group here that wants to do an interview about avalanches. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Carl's a good friend. So I go over there and I'd been out in Eagles pass for the day and I crossed this group of people and, uh, that were all parked underneath the north aspect in the alpine building a jump. And, uh, you know, I see it constantly. And the north aspect is definitely in a high hazard situation with a 50 cm persistent slab problem on it. And I'm just like, wow. But I see this all the time. And, uh, you know, I've talked to people. I've brought it up to them, whatever else. It becomes, you know, combative. And I've tried being nice. I've tried being a, a total ass. I, you know, I just keep going. I just see it all the time, right? And uh, so I continued and I went over to give this interview and then I walked around in the trailer and I looked at all the sleds and I was like, oh, wow, you guys are the ones parked under the north aspect. Cool. And um, not cool, you know. So after talking with them for a good period of time and a nice over a nice whiskey and not like a heated conversation, but let's just where'd you come from and how did you make that decision? And uh you know, they came from the U.S. and they had sat through what they called level one, level two, and level three. And then after I realized what level three was, was the third awareness talk at three hours, I saw what the problem was. And, you know, talking to that producer really kind of motivated me. He's like, I got three kids. I, you know, I felt completely empowered that I knew what I was doing and I totally understood it. I'm like, well, you just took a way outside of your risk tolerance decision making and you put you exposed a whole group and that's what you know is potentially shutting down our backcountry up here or you know the situations Canada has lived through so I I feel that 
there's some issue, and, and I, I think Canada had that problem too, where we were basically doing these awareness talks and people felt that they were good and they were communicating that they were education and they're just not. Um, what is what is graduated education? I think the, uh, the uh, industry can do a better job of marketing what that graduated education is and what it gets you. And I think that would help motivate people understand where they need to be to take on certain activities. Well, I hope we're shifting from a culture of just checking the box of taking one or two courses and being done, right? Like this, people need yeah. to understand that this is a, a, a skill and that takes a lot of experience to even come close to being proficient at. And, and it's not just like a one and done type of deal within avalanche education. It's lifelong learning, right? I agree. And I think, I think the, you know, the snowboard ski community has definitely adopted that. Um, you know, it's with inside the culture, it's with inside of their media development and the respect towards the uh, ability to judge that is really there, you know, um, but uh, it's not in snowmobiling at this point. And not, luckily we have skiing and snowboarding to look at as, as a framework to uh, help guide the motorized community into a, a better understanding of safe backcountry use. Um, but with that being said, I think where the fallout between the two communities is, is, okay, you know, the motorized community is adopting, like, hey, we got to get some sort of education. And, yeah, I think we need to adjust the idea that that's a graduated education. And that needs to come from the organized avalanche world. But the organized avalanche world really struggles with understanding what's missing for us, right? They don't they don't get it. And there's the snowmobilers don't communicate skier and and vice versa. And I think there's very few of us that have enough seat time on both to understand and the professional background to understand what is missing. And, um, and that goes for even a lot of the motorized avalanche education community at this point. So maybe with, you know, a guiding standard development and as we look at those guides and how they manage their hazard with groups, we can start to look to develop, um, key content and the missing content for the recreational user. But see, the thing with me is I, uh, um, I don't have a lot of patience for the time in the bureaucracy because I, I hate to pick up when somebody's died. So then I read the story and I feel connected to it. So I'm, uh, I'm always this guy full of friction because I'm fighting for change all the time. That's needed for change to happen, I think. So uh, keep doing what you're mm-hmm. doing, man. Jeremy, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your background and and your entry into the winter backcountry environment um, through snowboarding and snowmobiling, and then share share some of your personal history with avalanches. I, I know you have a pretty compelling story to tell. So, uh, how did you get into this? And then talk about a couple incidents that you've been a part of. Well, I. Uh... My first real experience with the mountains, I was uh, pretty young. You know, I was up at a place in northern British Columbia called Powder King, and I started there, and I got lucky that, you know, as I learned to snowboard, I had a, a lot of guys that frequent up there were mountaineer kind of guys that would disappear over to the Himalayas and stuff and then come back in winter, and I kind of got taken underneath their wings a little bit as I first got exposed to the backcountry, and, and man, that was, I was 15, 16 years old. So, you know, quite a long time ago, and I really fell in love with snowboarding. And then I moved back to, to southern Alberta and, and uh, 
you know, went to work in oil and gas and, and I uh, yeah, started snowboarding around the Fernie and uh, Lake Louise area and ski touring. And it was before, you know, it was all the old school transceivers and stuff, but I didn't really have a good grasp of avalanches. And uh, we had to get transceivers and probes to open this gate that uh, took us into the backcountry in, in uh, sunshine. And I remember getting caught in a decent size class two and drug out over the set of rocks and into, uh, into the ski out at sunshine when they first opened that area. And that's really kind of my first hidey hole with avalanches and, uh, and, you know, starting to take the rec courses that existed at the time and a few things like that. And, uh, started learning some basics and really that in Canada is if you looked at 90, uh, 90 to 95, there was an influx of snowboarders and skiers in the backcountry, and there was fatality rates were going through the roof in that department. And that's really where the Canadian Avalanche Association started the Canadian Avalanche Centre, and they were just trying to reach out and create these rec courses to help educate the community uh, about the avalanche problem because there was a large use of, in the backcountry that was not being guided by heli skiing or anything else that existed. So a lot of people just had a story like mine where they almost passed away or some sort of connection and they wanted to help the general user. And that's kind of where the, the rec courses really started honing themselves. And then they worked into Canada into what they call the Avalanche Skills Training Program. And, uh, and then that's been morphing and growing ever since. But that's where I first really kind of got exposed to avalanches and, uh, and you know, backcountry uses, well, Rogers Pass and uh, Sunshine Lake Louise area, the Rockies, Spree Lakes. But then circumnavigate, uh, you know, I had a short little high quality career in snowboarding and uh, I had hurt my back really bad. So the following year in 97, I think it was, 98, I bought a snowmobile to access the backcountry and uh, and I lied to myself a lot like you. I, <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to access with this. And it wasn't the next year I didn't touch my snowboard for a long time. And um, uh, yeah, there was just a, a kind of a hardcore group of riders pushing train out here and pushing snowmobiles. Uh, I kind of connected with Alfred and Cody, a bunch of these guys that were filming with the uh, Slednex stuff and Brap and some of the media stuff. So I spent quite a few years um, spending my backcountry time with them. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, there was... I got so many stories, I forget half of them a lot, a lot of the time, but I guess we have the pivotal one, uh, Area 51, 03, uh, it's, it's uh, the story you watch in Throttle Decisions. Um, uh, yeah, we had a group of people exposed, another group put a line over our heads, triggering a, a fairly large avalanche, um, and buried uh, four or five of us, basically, and one person died, and... Uh, I came out blue and had to be resuscitated. So uh, when I look at that story, um, it's everything that's going wrong in snowmobiling, right? Like it's, you know, grouping up, putting a line over people's heads, all these different things. And the story is really long and in depth. And I, uh, I have plans to release that story in in-depth look, not the short, quick look that Throttle Decision is. Uh, Throttle Decisions is for next fall. And, uh, and analyzing... Um, near misses like that, I think really uh, hone our ability to say what needs to be adjusted. And in our particular accident there where the fatality was, you know, there's uh, pretty much everything that goes wrong in snowmobiling went wrong in that avalanche. So in the decision-making of it. So 
Um, I never really did much with it. I uh, was like any man. I just stuffed it in my back pocket, carried on. My sled was rode off. I went home, got a new sled. And I knew if I didn't get back on snow, I probably wouldn't go. And the mountains are really my only real love. It doesn't matter what form of travel that is. May it be ski touring, snowmobiling, or helicopter. It's I just love being in the backcountry. So I uh, I went and got another sled and I went back out. And, uh, and I'm lucky I did because if I would have sat the summer on that, mentality I probably would have been terrified of the mountains and uh never went back out from that experience but uh you know and it's what makes me not a passionate uh advocate but also really well understood about managing risk in the backcountry period and on a snowboard on a snowmobile especially you know and, and what is the priority things that you're looking at because of the fear and the knowledge of what it's like to lay in a hole and wait to die for 15 minutes so um, that, that, that accident didn't really do much originally, but yeah, it left a lot of post-traumatic stress. Five years later, I, uh, I meet this girl named Ren. She asks if, uh, I'm interested in talking about my burial story. Had never really talked about it in five years. Uh, had a beer with her. Uh, she told me one of her own personal stories, had a bit of a cry and then asked if I would attend these meetings to help deal with, uh, the snowmobile fatality rates that were happening in, uh, with inside of Canada at the time. So if you look at 2000 to 2005 snowmobile fatalities, they're almost in Canada for motorized, they're almost the same as 90, 95 for motorized, for uh, skiing and snowboarding. So, um, you know, we did some PowerPoints and I'd never done any public speaking. I, in 08, you know, the oil and gas had kind of collapsed. Uh, me and my dad had a company and I worked for this company for a long time, took a big severance package and just didn't know what was next for me anyways. And this fell on my lap and really post-traumatic stress kind of took over. I just started uh, uh, advocating for change and I was kind of surprised walking into those meetings how little the community really understood, like the avalanche community really understood what snowmobilers were doing and how to address that problem in the backcountry. So uh, that really motivated me for to where I am sitting here still today. And so around that time you moved to Revelstoke, is that is that right? I've owned in Revelstoke since 299. So I, I was still out in oil and gas, but I owned a house here. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and Alfred bought a house here. Yeah, I think it was 99 or 2000 or something like that. And um, so I we had, and uh, we were in the midst of buying another place, but that didn't work out for us to buy together. So we had split sheets and... Um, uh, so I, I was actually in the midst of selling that place and uh, buying a timber frame just outside of town. And, uh, you know, I, I did all right in oil and gas. So um, I had time to just kind of kick it for a little bit. And, uh, um, yeah, just the whole avalanche thing just overtook. I had no desire to be an avalanche educator. I, uh, I uh, It wasn't the direction I wanted to go. I just felt like I should give something back to snowmobiling. So... Uh, I got involved and then I, I think a lot of it was post-traumatic stress that kept me really engaged and, um, and, and, you know, just volunteering huge amounts of time until eventually, um, to be honest, frustration got me and I built my own business teaching. Sure. Along that time frame, you, you started taking some professional avalanche courses. I was hoping you could reflect back on that, like your first professional avalanche course as a snowmobiler. Um, maybe you didn't even take it on a snowmobile. I'm not sure, but, uh, talk, talk about what the state of that, those pro courses were in Canada at the time and maybe some shortcomings of, 
of addressing the motorized user that was looking to have a profession in the avalanche industry? Yeah. So, you know, I, uh, to have any credibility about what I was talking about in these meetings, you know, everybody kind of just looked at, well, you're not, you know, you haven't done any of these professional grade courses. So, uh, that motivated me to, to spend the money to go do them just to have the credibility. So, uh, I did an operations level one in Canada, they call it, which is that seven, uh, I think it was an eight day course at the time. And, uh, yeah, I did it on, uh, on a split board and, uh, well, even back then it was more snowshoeing too. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was not what I expected. You know, it was all about data collection and, and, and rightfully so the operational one course is what it's supposed to do. It's an entry level course to get into industry. And then that course is really designed to work within sort of mentorship programs on a ski hill or guides operations. Uh, It's doing what it's supposed to do, but for the snowmobile public, it's not, you know, we needed a guiding standard. We need a bunch of other things to make that applicable to, to accent and work with. And, um, so yeah, was it applicable to my backcountry recreational use? No. Okay. Was it, did I learn a lot? Yeah. hundred percent. You know, it's, uh, between understanding snowpack being to be able to apply that snowpack over terrain. Um, yeah, I, you know, I look back at that course and I, uh, took a lot away from that. And, um, and in Canada at the time, that's what you needed to do avalanche education was an active membership. So, I did that, and I had some mentors, Rand McElroy, uh, John Kelly. They um, they all wanted to see shift and change in the motorized culture too, and uh, they were investing their mentorship time into people to try to shift that culture. And uh, I was one of those people that pe- that you know some of the people were putting effort into, and uh, I don't know why sometimes because I'm a little rough around the edges and hard to get along with, but. Um, they invested in their time with me and uh, um, I did some time there and then I started an avalanche education business and carried on to uh, uh, operations level two in Canada, which is, I think it was 30 day course at the time. And then my professional membership uh, not far after. And then the mentorship with, with Ren, uh, you know, John Kelly, and then carrying on to like Ian Stewart and Johan Slam right now, I got a really give a shout out to those guys because uh, uh, although I cause a lot of friction once in a while, those guys really get behind, uh, get behind me and uh, also keep me kind of grounded in the thought pattern of how things move forward. And I think out of those courses, what I really learned was some serious uh, uh, human factors, communication skills. And, um, and I think the level two uh, operations level two, I really took a lot away f- from it with the human factors and how to work inside of a, a group and a functional group. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think snowpack is just, uh, and constantly having the true quality mentorship and knowledge of like Bruce Jameson as a mentor for a good period of time. Yeah. It's, um, the snowpack laid over train once again and, and how to work and build organized, uh, avalanche operations was, uh, hugely beneficial. So how has that evolved over time um, within the professional education in Canada? I know in the States, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, there are motorized Pro 1s um, and I'm not sure about Pro 2s available, but uh, is that starting to happen in Canada as well? 
Uh, yeah, so we now where the progression has gone is we actually have, because the mode of travel makes a difference, you know, as we all know, the ski tour or anything isn't a skill that everybody has, and the snowmobile isn't a skill that everybody has to be in the mountains with. So um, to grow the uh, pool of Operation One snowmobilers, we had to, yeah, build an Operational One course for with access with snowmobiles. And how much is that directed, that Operations One course, to snowmobiling it's not it's it's still the same course just with snowmobile access which is absolutely needed to grow our pool of people to work with so that's been going on for some time and I don't want to butcher it but I I believe over 10 years we've been doing uh operational one courses on snowmobiles and uh and same with our level two it doesn't happen every year we we uh, countermix the level two uh, with ski community. So the instruction portion is done with the ski community and the snowmobile community. And then the access points are done separate with snowmobiles for the level two program. And um, I think that's been hugely beneficial um, for our avalanche side of things. And I think, I think the difference between Canada and from what I understand, you know, talking with Duncan about the Airy Pro ones and, and a few things, uh, the real difference is that, our, our Canadian Avalanche Association courses are about avalanches. And when it comes to, you know, backcountry use with a snowmobile or a set of skis, you know, when it comes to the professional realm, we kind of lean on the guiding standards that are up in Canada to teach the rest of those components of being in the backcountry where I find like the area or the, the AAA Pro 1s and whatnot are, are actually a little more encompassing of all the different issues May that be tra- travel habits, spacing, and some of the guiding uh, things that come with being in the backcountry, not just the avalanche problem. And I think it's important to realize that a lot of the Canadian stuff is really wrapped around avalanches, maybe the documentation of it, the formation of them, and building an actual program and safety around that. But when it comes to the guiding components, we, we really kind of lean on the other organizations to deliver that content in their programming where, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not perfectly versed in this, but I, I feel like the pro one and pro two, uh, kind of address some of those conversations a little more in depth in the U S. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and so when you're talking about guiding standards in Canada, you're talking about, you know, CSGA and ACMG, um, what is there correct. for the, for the motorized crowd? I mean, I, I, I've heard, conversations are ongoing about some sort of certification for motorized guides what's what's the climate right now well they uh they've definitely pushed forward uh it's something i've advocated for a long time but uh i feel i've done a fair amount of piecework so i <laughs> stepped away from it a while ago but uh some key individuals have been pushing it forward uh so in January, I believe the, the plan is right now to run the first beta course for a guides association in Canada. Um, so they are going to do a four-day course, have a few long-timers come in, critique that product, and then try to deliver an actual proper guides course for people that have finished Lake Operations Level 2 already in Canada. And uh, picking from a, a group of pool of people that way, deliver the first actual true guiding course, which then will cement in their, their whole organization with a board of directors. And, uh, you know, it's not dissimilar than the ACMG as there's been a lot of mentorship from some key ACMG people helping to devi- develop this guiding standard um, in Canada. Because it's in Canada, it's really needed for us to, 
you know, deal with liability issues and the assortment of those sorts of things being in the backcountry and, and for our uh, operational uh, context and for people with tenures that need proper guides training and, and able to put guides out there that um, can do a job that they trust. So uh, with snowmobiling, I think also, you know, the technological developments in the machines have also created the, the need for this. And, and hopefully that's a pyramid effect as we hone that down into recreational snowmobiling as standards come out and get uh, hammered out of a thing like the guiding association will affect the recreational public as well. Sure. So we've been talking mostly about snowmobiling. How about uh, snow bikes? You know, like we've seen a huge increase in snow bike usage um, within the States and Canada in the last, I don't know, five or more years. And uh, do you ride snow bikes? How do you approach the terrain different? Talk about some of the nuances and, and are we doing what we can to, to hit the education mark for that user group as well? Um, yeah, so uh, Regan Sieg is a really good friend of mine. Um, yeah, and I used to build a snow bike every year. Love it. I, I spent a lot of time on a motocross bike. Absolutely adore it. If I had more time in my year, I would definitely be building a snow bike every year. Um, just because I, you know, want to burn money. But um, <laughs> uh, no, they're an absolute blast, and they do change things slightly. There's some similarities, but there's also a little similarity between snowboarding and skiing in between snow biking and snowmobiling. So snow biking is like right in between because you can really get rowdy on a snow bike as far as steep angled terrain and feel like you're in control. And um, because you can side hill on any steepness. And then the other problem is, you know, it's like you spend some time in Idaho on a snow bike and people just think that they're in safe terrain when it's treed, no different than skiing and snowboarding. And, uh, oh, it's heavily forested. I'm okay. But then, you know, you pop out into that 50 foot by 50 foot opening that drags you down into a creek bed. These are uh, pieces of terrain that really a- attract snow bikers. And, uh, and the idea of um, train traps is something that really needs to be focused on them. But then also that rider spacing and hazard recognition, once again, huge thing is they're moving through terrain. Uh, you know, I always used to, metaphor I use for, because mostly the people that are doing it are male, but you know, it's uh, as we travel through terrain, it's kind of like the old Vietnam movies about spacing and getting in an ambush. You know, you don't want to be all piled up on one another right in the middle of the opening. So, um, you know, focusing on those things uh, become a real primary thing. And, and I think that's where, you know, avalanche educators need to be skilled at a certain level um, of, of whatever discipline they're teaching about how to manage avalanche training with. And I think I've done probably 10 or 12 uh, you know, snow bike directed courses. And, uh, there is definitely a different approach and, uh, uh, you know, managing those people in avalanche train too, you notice really quickly, they're bumblebees and they can be in train that you don't expect them to be. So I go from teaching a, you know, avalanche course on snowmobiles for three weeks straight. And then I jump in, okay, we're going to do the snow bike thing. And right off the bat, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like normally, snowmobilers aren't going to take off on you here, here, or there. So you can almost playpen them in terrain. But when you have a snow bike, it changes things drastically to where they can be all of a sudden. So you can't use terrain to kind of playpen your group through the terrain. All of a sudden they can be up on a ridge without you even thinking twice about it because they're so maneuverable through the forest. They're just not super fast depending on snow conditions. So uh, yeah, there's a difference in the educational approach. And I do believe there's a market 
for properly targeted avalanche education for snow bikers. Mm. And, um, you know, they could take a general, let's say, Airy 1 and start there, but that next step should be targeted towards their their abilities and, and their weaknesses as well. Sure. Jeremy, talk a little bit about Soul Rides and, and how you came about to form that company and, and what you all offer. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, out of the frustration of, things not going the way, uh, the way that I wanted them to way back in the day, like we discussed about, um, you know, you have to be the change that you want to see in the world. So, um, uh, that's what I decided to do with my time. I didn't realize it was going to take 15 years, but, um, uh, that's what motivated me to start soul rides was to be the change that I wanted to see, uh, happen inside the avalanche industry for snowmobilers. So that's what motivated me to start soul rides. And, and where Soul Rides is at today, uh, you know, we teach a fair number of students really hands-on education that is directed towards motorized users. So in Canada, um, you know, I call it motorized avalanche skills training, and uh, because it is so targeted towards the motorized community, with uh, you know specialized motorized avalanche rescue, the train travel stuff, and I really look forward to getting all of that stuff into the ISSW, which I, I planned. For, but COVID really slowed down. You know, I, I think the ISSW is a great opportunity for peer review and um, and outside of opinion on that sort of content. So um, that's Soul Ride's kind of focus right now is driving into ISSW and getting a lot of that content peer reviewed, even though we've done it locally through peers around here. I think internationally, I think it's important as well because snowmobiling happens in places like Taiwan or Argentina or an assortment of places. So, um, so focusing on, you know, content development and well-structured outlines of that. So true curriculum writing, not just what I teach in the field, but having it well articulated through, uh, through a curriculum, right. And presentation. So, and media, um, so that's kind of where soul rides is at right now as we deliver these, uh, you know, directed motorized uh, content. And we, we have three levels of education. So in Canada, we, you know, Avalanche Canada has curriculum outlined for AST1 and AST2. Uh, as a professional member in Canada, uh, inside of my scope of practice, you know, I've developed uh, motorized Avalanche Skills Training 3. So not something from Avalanche Canada or segregated by Avalanche Canada, but something I've developed for the people that want to continue that growth of knowledge. So we offer intro days, one day on snow, show you what you don't know basically is what it's about and, uh, and convince you that you need to invest in avalanche education uh, by actually demonstrating what you need to know. And then that level one is a classic. I don't really teach the level one too often, but that's your classic two day on snow um, plus uh, two evenings instruction. Um, and... Um, or sorry, that's uh, two days on snow plus the morning instruction. And then I do an AST or a MAST 1 plus where I actually do two evenings of instruction and then two full days on snow. So basically instead of getting um, uh, 18 hours of education, you're getting 24, 26. And uh, I really find it's a better product and that's what I sell the most of. And then I do a two and a two plus and then I have my three. And uh, that's what Soul Rides is offering now. Uh, I have spent uh, a large sum of money on media equipment and with COVID, uh, it showed me the ability to teach online. And as much as I really 
really want to focus the fact that people need hands-on education. Uh, I built um, some online components and I was really happy with them. And, and I was really happy with some of the retention I saw out of, out of it. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, I think next year you'll see Soul Rides hand out a uh, fairly in-depth uh, avalanche avoidance program uh, for people to learn online. But, you know, that will also have a very, very strong message that it needs to have hands-on practice and application and knowledge for the retention. Um, so... You know, when I thought about it, I've taught myself to plumb, do electrical work, an assortment of things. Uh, I think there's some warrant to it, and uh, you might reach the guys in Minnesota. And the one thing I'm known for is selling courses uh, when I go to a, a stop. I can sell people into continued education. So I'm hoping to do that through uh, online education and then promote a certain amount of providers throughout uh, North America for the hands-on portion of it. Um, so you'll see that pop out of Soul Rides next fall. Um, Soul Rides is uh, just starting to put a lot of effort into YouTube. So this year we pre-programmed a bunch of YouTube releases uh, focusing on the problem of, let's say, and documenting. So instead of me being so full of friction, I'm just going to start presenting videos like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And uh, so there's a bunch on electrical interference. Um, so people can start recognizing it, you know, instead of, just kind of discounting it. I think the avalanche industry is really wanting not to, to look at this problem and accept that it is a problem. So once again, I spent a lot of time figuring out what those problems are and how to present them. Um, so, you know, people are like, oh, well, the cell phone doesn't give me a problem. If I have, you know, a quality signal, it won't give me a ghost signal. But when you all of a sudden you have a multiple burial, what it will start doing is showing you a second person buried when it doesn't exist. And it doesn't need to be that close to that searching transceiver. So, um, you know, the topics are pretty vast when it comes to electrical interference. So instead of just getting in arguments about it, I'm just going to demonstrate it via a social media channel. And, um, and uh, yeah, with that, I'm going to produce my actual life story to draw people into that conversation. So new websites, uh, online store, a bunch of stuff in the background for Soul Rides. Yeah. And those online resources, I was checking out your website and, and those are great. And it's such great reinforcement for people that have maybe are about to take an avalanche course or have taken an avalanche course, um, to go back and, and have access to those resources. So check out Soul Ride's website, check out some of those online resources. But as Jeremy says, uh, it does not take the place of actual hands-on in the field training. I was curious how how much retention are you getting through your courses? Are people coming back for the motorized AST two two or one plus? Ooh, I would uh, venture out to say in Canada, I have a large return rate for my level two. I have a thirty person waiting list for my level three at this point. Uh, I've done some willy nilly level threes, so to speak, and what I mean by that is I just kind of. I, uh, I winged them and I got real crazy to the point where I was, you know, renting a helicopter to extract the body and, and putting a going pre going out there and burying a full body and having them have to manage that whole problem. And uh, over the three that I've ran, I've kind of honed into what I want it to be. So I actually want to write the curriculum out and I'm hoping to produce another level three honed and wrote out uh, in this March. So, uh, uh, I have a huge uptake for level two, which is, um, 
I, I think uh, a real testament to, to what we do with Soul Rides and how we deliver it uh, compared to some of the other providers uh, in Canada anyways. Uh, I know it's a big focus for Avalanche Canada right now to to look at how to get more people into level two. And the, the reality is it comes down to pretty simple messaging is if you want to like Revelstoke, you want to ride Boulder or Frisbee, then get a simple Avalanche course. You want to venture out, you need to become a little bit more of a mountain snowmobiler and, and get a furthered education. And uh, so I think the simple three-part message of simple avalanche trains, simple avalanche course in Canada. And I know some of the verbiage and wordage is a little different in the U.S. And, uh, you know, the U.S. being a little more uh, discombobulated with how the avalanche organizations work in conjunction together just due to the, you know, the political environment of the area and organizational environment and topography. It's, um, yeah, I think you can find some similar messages. And that's where I think motorized users need to start playing a role with the avalanche world a little bit. And, you know, things like uh, the Avalanche uh, Alliance is generating some revenue. And, and I think uh, we as motorized users need to combine and, and, and uh, focus some of our funding help into these organizations and maybe look at what we need to get back from them and say, hey, can you do a study for this? And then what should we do for this messaging and that sort of thing? And um, I think the Avalanche Alliance uh, has uh, some good volatility that way to to do so and um, and motivate some change and some growth in in the avalanche community of what we need. Yeah, it's it's certainly come leaps and bounds in the last ten years, and I hope that mm-hmm. one one day we just see ourselves as one community, you know, and, and not so segmented. I think that's probably a far-fetched thing just to the way the world is now between, you know, biking and walking and that, that mentality. I think what, I think what the reality is, is when we're in the backcountry, it's about human life. So maybe skiing, snowboarding, biking. I, I do all of those sports and a lot of people do. And just like snowboarding and skiing kind of amalgamated into one, maybe it's potential, but in the, in the backcountry, it's just, we're all there together. So having some skill set and fatality is very real. Uh, having somebody lose their life, even though they're a skier and you don't like them, isn't really cool. So, um, you know, if you're able to help, and I know a lot of these areas are getting a lot of crossover traffic now where we have a lot of sled skiers and a few other things, and there's these friction points, it still comes down to backcountry etiquette and, and safety and that understanding of that etiquette and safety, no matter you get along or don't get along. And I think with the avalanche community, I think we're at the point where uh, everybody is kind of getting along on a professional realm to to implement uh, for better good of life. And uh, so I think that's a real positive. I, I, I hope to see, I like all sports in the backcountry and, and as far as land access issues and all the rest of it, maybe it's a little more heated up here than it is down there. And up here, it's kind of happening in the background, but um, uh, yeah, I I, uh, I do all the sports and I do them well at a, at a high level and I, uh, and I enjoy just being out there. So hopefully everybody gets on that same page. Yeah, there you go. Jeremy, you're pretty heavily involved in the SCADI Foundation. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what that is and what your involvement is. So the SCADI Foundation, uh, SCADI is, uh, I think most of the, the world understands what Ular was, which was the kind of the Viking snow god or whatever. Um, SCADI was the, uh, the winter mother uh, inside of that same folklore. And, um, and, uh, you know, it was kind of a negative folklore that she prepared for the coming winters. 
and uh, and that's why we called it the the Scatty Foundation. And we started it quite a few years ago to help culture change. And uh, myself, Jeff Scott, a few other guys, uh, we built the foundation, and uh, we had some really big dreams. And then uh, those big dreams became too overwhelming, <laughs> and mostly probably due to my own uh, humility and push forward. And uh, we were able to run a couple things out of the organization, one called the Calling Video and Photo Competition, which we had great return. And and uh, and really, those it was all about media development and getting us some videos that came from the pros that really um, focused on, you know, backcountry safety so we could pump that out. So the foundation's real focus is about motorized mountain survival. And, um, and it is a registered nonprofit in Canada. Um, so from there, our goal was we had a lot of effort into a backcountry event for snowmobiling and backcountry events in Revelstoke, that word comes up and the big iron shootout comes up and the government gets really uh, cold feet. Right. And, um, you know, and if, for people that don't know what the Big Iron Shootout was, in 2010, we had potentially 180 people buried in one Class 3 avalanche on Boulder Mountain. And uh, so the idea of vents in the backcountry were uh, pretty tight, but we put a lot of energy into this cross-country race event for snowmobiling and uh, mountain festival. And that kind of wore us out and we didn't quite get there. Uh, we had lots of buy-in from government and stuff, but... Um, other things happened in life where we were too busy, so it got parked and, uh, it's been parked and just kind of, I've been paying out of my pocket to keep it, uh, still moving forward and reporting with government. And, uh, this year it's changed. Um, we have got some nice big platinum sponsorship and, uh, we are producing three key things. We are doing a custom helmet fundraiser, uh, throughout our local area and one online, the next one was we're reproducing the calling video and photo competition with a uh, fundraiser evening uh, to close it out at the end of a whole year and um, avalanche games. So this is uh, the one thing I'm uh, the most proud of, I think, at this point for the foundation to produce. We've hired a contractor and um, uh, here February uh, long weekend, I believe it's the 14th, 15th this year. You'll be able to compete for prize money worth about four to five thousand dollars and rescue games. Cool. Where can people find out more about that? So we're not quite there yet. So you're getting like uh, kind of the scoop. It hasn't really been overly released, but mid-November, uh, our population of our website will have all the information to the calling, the avalanche games, and the uh, and the the helmet fundraiser for the organization. Cool. Very cool. We want to make sure people realize that I'm actually really positive about where we are right now. You know, it's, uh, I know I come off as change, 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 and nothing's right, but there's, like you said, in the last 10 years, there's been huge amounts of progression in the right direction. You know, like, you know, uh, Skidoo's been pumping out these, uh, um, free avalanche stuff, uh, free avalanche seminars. I was a part of that for a couple of years with them. And, um, I think that's great. And uh, with every good point, there's a bad point and we're always continuing to learn and progress. So, and I, I tend to spend a lot of time on the focus of the bad points. And I, I hate that people take that away from me because there's lots of a positivity that's happened and awareness that's going on, which will really generate the knowledge that's needed. And if you look at Canada, there's no two ways to lie about the stats. We went from losing like 20 to 30 people every year for quite a few years down to five or six. 
So <laughs> we did something right there. And it's partly why like Aerie reached out to us up here and what we did right. And they started a motorized curriculum that was actually pretty well written. If you want to look at the motorized curriculum, I think it's the closest to what it needs to be. Uh, Aerie's full write-up there, which I've studied multiple times and um, is an actual true written out curriculum. Is it perfect? No, because everything's always progressing. And I tend to focus on that progression, but the reality is, is that there's been lots of great things and movement forward. And, and I do see like when I do talks in Idaho or whatever, or was doing, um, you know, the panhandle and all the different organizations have been showing up to these motorized outreach, uh, events and they're trying to start that communication. So, uh, there is a ton of positivity that's happening in the industry. Um, so I just, I'd like people to know that, even though I argue for the change all the time and focus on the negatives, I, I do also appreciate all the, the positive things that are happening. Well, we, we need those movers and shakers like yourself to, to make that happen. So uh, we all really appreciate it, Jeremy. I was curious, do you think we'll ever see a time when, you know, like you buy a brand new sled, you get an avalanche course and they subsidize that avalanche education is that a conversation that you've ever heard had within the industry? Yeah, I've heard it. You know, uh, after the Big Iron Shootout, um, which was in 2010, there was this huge BC coroner review panel, which has only ever really been two, I believe, in Canada. I might butcher that a bit. But at the time, there was only two coroner review panels, and we were losing so many sledders at the time, it became this big thing. So uh, it became a big meeting, uh, provincial politicians involved, the whole nines, Um that corner review panel came up with 15 recommendations for the for the avalanche community and the motorized community at the time. And, and in that review panel, they had named all four manufacturers. And uh, it's kind of, that's big things. And, you know, as the four manufacturers converged on this meeting as well, the conversation was, well, you know, we're only having this many deaths. We have this many deaths falling through lakes with snowmobiling. So, um, you know, we advocate for this or that. And, you know, I think the avalanche community here was looking for them to uh, get off their wallets, so to speak, and get involved. And uh, I think that's where you saw things come from Skidoo and a few other investment portions. And that's really where the free talk tours came from, from, uh, from Skidoo and then our Bombardier. But you, the, to answer the question you're talking about is that at that meeting, uh, I walked in there and the first thing on the table was, do we need snowmobiling in this province? And um, it was a big thing because what happened at the Big Iron Shootout is there were so many people exposed and the media had got a hold of some images of this kid that had his head squished into in between snowmobiles and a bunch of stuff. And people started writing their local MLAs and politicians up here. So it was a pretty hitting conversation in that meeting and it's not like they were going to ban it but the part just for the question to be there saying do we need snowmobiling in this province and so getting to answer that question is one of the ideas was licensing you know like a boat license or anything else and in Canada the boat licensing problem went digital and all the rest of it and and it wasn't really it didn't really do that good of a job the boat licensing program of actually educating people on what they needed to know they would cheat on the tests or they do it digitally or organizations or companies would just basically pump out these boat courses and sign a piece of paper and not really educate, you know? And so our arguments from the Canadian avalanche world at the time, uh, was to argue for culture change. And, um, so, and that's, that's where you saw a million dollars come in from the British Columbia government and the SARNIF grant. 
and that's how throttle decisions was created. Uh, I was uh, heavily a part of that contract to create that product and we pushed for culture change and, and hopefully that's why we wanted culture change was to make sure that quality courses were motivating and educating people at a decent standard and then moving them into the graduated understanding of learning. And, uh, I think it worked in Canada. There's, I've talked to some lots of well-educated people about, you know, the big iron show being a black swan event, they call it, uh, in human consciousness. And, and that's what deters. And we potentially could have more fatality come when that black swan event leaves the human consciousness, which is just starting to happen where people in this industry don't remember the big iron shootout. Like a lot of my students are young enough to not remember that that happened. Um, but so to answer your question, I think licensing and or giving away free avalanche courses could be a dangerous thing on the quality level. So mm -hmm. uh, I think it's potentially interesting, but I think, I think the avalanche organizations need to be a little bit better at the quality control of what's being pumped out before that would happen. Um, I think, uh, of course, I'm always going to expect every course to be the absolute best course on the planet. And does it need to be that? Not necessarily, but, you know, for me and some of the organizations I look at, you know, a better quality control of what's being delivered, I think needs to happen in a fair amount of those before, before I would be in support of that uh, approach. And if I could give away what I do for free, uh, I would do it tomorrow. And I tried to with throttle decisions. You know, I didn't make a dime off that project. Probably cost me 30 grand just to be a part of it. <laughs> so, um, it's, uh, I think it's, you gotta be cautious to, to see what they're actually getting out of that course. And I, I would love, absolutely love to see more involvement from manufacturers with that statement. And, uh, I think they always divert to saying, Hey, talk to ISMA and uh, the International Snowmobile Manufacturers Association. And, um, and ISMA has uh, got their approach to manage how they're spending. And I think, I think if the Avalanche world can get going or the Avalanche Alliance can go sit down to ISMA and say, hey, we have a standardized approach. And I think, you know, some of the meetings I was privy to many, many years ago was that's what ISMA wanted, was a standardized approach for North America. And, um, and that's still what I'm sitting here advocating for now. And, um, is that so that when snowmobilers are out together and you have somebody from Utah and somebody from Canada and we're riding around Utah, that it's, you know, if we have a fatality, we work in that rescue as a, as the same planning and understanding, or we work on train travel in a similar fashion so we can kind of intermingle together um, and have a, a similar understanding of how to manage that problem uh, as a group because it is a lot like a game of hockey or football as you move through avalanche train it's about recognizing where the hazard is and where you need to post and look back and and to minimize that risk and and then of course you know uh, I think that really comes with an international standard so uh, I'd like to see that before I see manufacturers uh, throw down on uh, free courses. Yeah, I think as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the importance of training with your partners, right? And not only having mm -hmm. trusted partners in the backcountry, no matter what you're doing, but actually taking some of these courses with people that you ride with um, and then, you know, taking the time to practice the skills that you've learned with those people. Um, I, I see as the utmost importance and, and not only staying safe, but just being able to 
uh, be more efficient in the backcountry, right? And and ultimately having more fun. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's really what snowmobiling needs is because when I go out there with a group of people that I really know how to ride with and, we, you know, we've practiced hockey together, we play well and you mm-hmm. can take risk and you can move, you can jump, you know, but I have, uh, you know, scars all across my forehead and my body and broken backs and all these stories and, you know, I uh, I like traveling with a uh, emergency medicine person, you know, it's like you got to you got to have the skill set to manage the risks that you're in taking and um and it's not just the avalanche problem in the backcountry, you know. It, it's extraction with a helicopter. How do you plan on getting out? It's motorized mountain survival and that's kind of what Scaddy's focused around and and really you're going to see a bunch of content come from that organization around using safe backcountry use in Canada right now. Our, our call-outs for our volunteer search and rescue teams are huge on the motorized side. So it's a, it's another level of, uh, of safe backcountry use that has to happen. And, and uh, really, that's what you want in a, in a riding partner. So when I built the courses I have now, I, I asked myself, what do I want in a riding partner? Mm-hmm. I do this 120 days a season for over 20 years. What do I want out of a riding partner? And when I looked at a lot of the content delivered in, let's say, an AST1, it's like, okay, well, I'm focused so heavily on teaching somebody to do a compression test that I don't need somebody that can do a compression test as much as I need somebody that realizes they shouldn't park beside me when I have a train trap below me and a huge piece of train above my head because I had a mechanical problem. <laughs> you know, like, um, I, I need that more than I need somebody to be able to, you know, administer a compression test. So I, I think, uh, I think, you know, targeted education is really key to making you as a, as a snowmobiler look over and have a good partner as a snowmobiler to ride with. And how do you, even as a, let's say an avalanche professional, uh, morph your riding partners into that? Well, the only way to do that is to sit down and ha- over beers and have a constructive conversation about what went wrong in your day and what went good, because, as you know, it's how many sleeping sharks did we cross today? <laughs> and um, so I, I, I think the courses need to be able to deliver you a quality riding partner. And I question uh, how effective they are at that because the reality is level two is where every intermediate mountain snowmobiler should be mm-hmm. for an understanding. And it, and ultimately it does come down, Airy, AST, whoever time spent, time paid, how much energy do you have into building that, that uh, understanding out of your student? Well, if you only have 20 hours with them, you're only going to get 20 hours. I don't care if it's me or Duncan or anybody like and the best educator to the worst educator, you only got 20 hours. So what's the quality of retention in the student that's coming out? And so that, I think that's the reality where, where everybody has to realize that this is a graduated education and, um, uh, not just on snowpack, but actual gameplay rules. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think I think some educators get good at, and not to say that I'm the best educator, I've just been beating my head against the wall trying to figure out the best, let's say, metaphor that makes the majority of the people in a class click. Maybe it's uh, learning to drive, graduated education, you know, metamorphosism. Like, how can I speak about that? Is that like, sucking a Slurpee? Like, whatever clicks for the group, I... I, I do think we could get a better standardized education in North America, and I think it's absolutely needed. And you let me know however you need help, and 
that goal, I will put energy and time into. Because I, I think ISMA and the manufacturers would get behind that financially. And then for you guys, as a, as a forecaster, I think there's the other big thing. You know, working with Ian Stewart Patterson quite a bit, we've done, uh, and, and with SCADI Foundation funding that a little bit, is, is understanding the impact the, that snowmobiles or motorized use has on the snowpack and what's the potential for triggering and what is for the forecasting teams in the professional realm the key components when communicating with snowmobilers uh, when they're headed out to the backcountry which is something you brought up earlier right and if you, you should because uh, there's a couple key forecasters working for Avcan right now that are snowmobiling fairly intensely and their communication tactics you can see where it clicks in the verbiage that you're trying to communicate to the motorized public. If you peak, if you speak snowboarder, it doesn't communicate, but if you speak sledder in some sort of mechanical terms, it comes off in that forecast a little bit better for them. So good for you for challenging yourself to understanding the sport, to do a better job of, of, you know, messaging through, through the forecast. Well, I'm just scratching the surface. <laughs> I've got a long way to go, but um, it's certainly a, a fun challenge for sure. Um, well, Jeremy, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today, sharing your thoughts, sharing your experiences. Um, and everybody should go check out soulrides.ca, check out the website. Um, you can find some awesome videos there and give those guys a follow on the social media as well. Um, seems like you always have some good content coming out there as well. Yeah, thanks, man. And, and hey, thanks for doing the podcast because I think uh, these long-form conversations uh, for people driving down the road, I, I, especially in the professional realm, I think uh, can really help drive um, uh, those things forward, you know, and those and maybe those learning points where it clicks for somebody to say, hey, I, this is an opportunity for me to go back to my organization and say, we need to do this slightly different. And I think that's why I brought a little bit more heavy-hitting conversation to the podcast was, uh, like I said, I just, uh, life saved is worth it. And I could show you a bunch of messages on my social media that would make you cry. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jeremy. Well, we look forward to seeing you and Ben for ISSW, if not before, um, look forward to meeting you there in person and, and hearing what you have rolling out from soul rides and some of your other ventures. Um, until then, I hope you have a great winter, stay safe and have a lot of fun out there. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. All right. Cheers, buddy. Well, we sure hope that you enjoyed that interview. Thanks, Jeremy, for making the time and offering your opinions and advice and thoughts about the current climate of motorized avalanche education. Music on today's episode was provided by Ketza and Sholin Dub with permission from the artists. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Meet a man, T. Check out Mike's website for more of his artwork at www.miketea.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And then rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. This goes a long way. I love getting those reviews. And of course, the five-star ratings, or however many stars you want to give me, it's fine. Just leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. We're also on the Tell a Friend program, so if you're enjoying the show, tell a friend, get them hooked. Let's grow this, uh, let's grow this community even further. 
If you've got any feedback for the show, you can send us an email at the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. And another way to support the podcast is through a financial donation to help the continuation and growth of this podcast. You can find a PayPal link and QR code at the bottom of our website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Again, I'd like to thank the sponsors of the podcast, Visa and Avalanche Control and 10 Barrel Brewing. Couldn't do it without you. So thank you for your continued support. Tune in for our next episode that will be released on Tuesday, November 1st. And until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.